Shalom, shalom, friends. It's great to be with you all here today. Uh, we are excited for this very important topic, very, very important topic with a very rich history and an enormous contemporary relevance around, um, around the other, the ethics of alterity. Um, and we're fortunate to be with a great scholar here today who is no uh, stranger to us, but if he was, we would still love him as a stranger. Um, and that is Svi Zohar, who was born in the U.S. I didn't even know that. And has been living in Israel since his parents came on Aliyah in 1958. After service in the IDF, he studied for three years in the Mirkaz Harav Yeshiva, not a small thing, in Yerushalayim, before engaging in undergraduate studies at Ben-Gurion University in Beersheba. His graduate studies were conducted at Hebrew University's Institute of Contemporary Jewry, where he completed his PhD in 1989. During the 90s, he taught at several academic institutions, including Ben-Gurion University, the Ramat Gan Law College, and Hebrew U. Subsequently, Svi Zohar was appointed John C. Stillman Professor of Sephardic Law and Ethics at Bar-Ilan University, very important, where he taught from 99 in the Faculty of Law and in the Faculty of Jewish Studies until he was granted the status of Professor Emeritus in October 2017. Israel kind of tries to move you along. Svi has been uh, associated for many years with the Shalom Hartman Institute in Yerushalayim, where he was appointed a senior fellow at the Kogod Research Center for Contemporary Jewish Thought. And after retiring from Bar-Ilan, he spent half a year from January to June of 2018 as a visiting professor at Brandeis University in the Department of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies and in the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. Svi is on the editorial boards of the Journal of Law, Religion and State published by Brill of Pa'amim and of Tzionut Datit. He was recently awarded a four-year grant by the Israel Science Foundation to, re to research Sephardic hal halachic creativity in Israel from the Six-Day War until the present. Svi is interested in all aspects of Jewish life and thought especially in modern times. His research focuses on the culture and creativity of Sephardic Oriental rabbis in modern times and on the sociology, anthropology, and historical development of halakha, of Jewish law. So uh, friends, we are very excited that Professor Zohar here. We are um, an educational organization, but we are also an activist organization that is working each day to support refugees and asylum seekers relevant to this topic, many other populations as well. And so we are both interested in how to bring more chizik, more strength to that work, but also to think critically, think critically, historically, and intellectually about, um, about the various nuances from our tradition and how they can inform uh, these central ethics that we often discuss. So Professor Zohar, welcome back. Um, shalom everybody. And uh, it's about, uh, 20 of seven here out in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And I'm happy to be with you and uh, with uh, Shmuley and Eddie. And uh, what we'll be talking about today is about the, the gear as that phrase appears in certain uh, parts of the Torah and then follow through this issue and several problematics that will uh, be seen over the, the time. And of course, Torah in many ways supports and uh, advocates for us to be helpful to various categories of people who uh, are in need of support and strength. And the, the widow, Almana, the, the 
orphan, a yatom, poor people, ani, and so on. And one of these is the ger, the word ger, um, which we'll soon be seeing what this means, appears in the Torah in various contexts and throughout the Bible. And apparently not all of these have the same meaning. So it has to be understood contextually. And what we're going to be doing in the following uh, time is looking at certain uh, certain verses from the Torah and uh, trying to see what their uh, plain meaning is and then see what Chazal, the rabbis, did with that. And once we see that, we will realize that we have a certain contemporary issue which we need to address. And the rest of the time we'll be spending seeing how to deal with that from the point of view of a, a halachic mode of thinking. So what I would like to do now is to share screen with you of the text, which uh, maybe uh, some of you have. And uh, I'm going first is going to appear the wrong text. And, and now is going to appear the correct text. Okay. And uh, what you should be seeing here is a text that says that the top you shall not oppress the gear. To whom does this norm apply today under halacha? So in four verses, the Torah cites God as requiring the Israelites, that's the previous name of the Jewish people, to be especially considerate of persons who are in the status of gear. And we have four such sukim that give the justification for that. We were ourselves gerim in the lands of Egypt. You shall not wrong or oppress a gear for your gerim in the land of Egypt. Uh, similarly, in Shemot, in Exodus, uh, further on, you shall not oppress a gear. You know the heart of the gear. When a gear resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. You shall treat him as an Ezrah. We'll see further on what that means. You shall love him as yourself. For you were Gerim in the land of Egypt. And um, in Devarim, uh, God's greatness is extolled and his justice, and he renders justice for the orphan and the widow and loves the ger, giving him bread and cloak. You shall love the ger for you are gerim in the land of Egypt. Now, we'll see here two places in this book of Bereshit where we find the term ger, Abraham, coming to bury Sarah, speaks to the Chitim Benechet, and he says, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. I am a ger and a resident among you. And before that, which is the first appearance of the term in the Torah, and some people hold that the first appearance of the term in uh, the Bible 
somehow establishes or has special significance in understanding this term. God says to Abraham, to Avram, <clears throat> you shall know that your seed shall be gerim in a land, in a land not theirs, and they shall be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Now, the Mefarshim, Abraham, Eben, Ezra, who was one of the great Mefarshim of the of medieval times and set a standard for Peshat interpretation, <clears throat> explains the difference between the Ger and the Ezrah, which today it's used as a citizen. But Ibn Ezra points out the background of this term. In Hebrew, a person who has a family is likened to a branch attached to its source. And in Tehillim, this appears that the person was like a branch attached to its source, an individual, such an individual is called an Izrach, where the meaning of Izrach is a branch, as in a sprouting tree with many branches, Izrach Ra'anan. Conversely, as opposed to that, Ger means a berry plucked from a branch. So an Ezrach is a person who together with his family is rooted in a certain place. And a Ger is somebody who may be in that same place, but he is plucked from his place and context of origin and is an individual uh, cut off from his original place and society. And Rashi explains what does this mean when Abraham says, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem, I am a Ger and a, a settler with you. Ger me'eretz acheret that I'm coming from a different country, but I have settled here. But a ger means somebody who is not in their original context that was plucked from their original context and is now living somewhere else. And thus the straightforward meaning of the Torah seems to be that a ger is someone who is detached from his land of origin, temporarily sojourning in a foreign country. This was the situation of us, the Israelites in Egypt. And the verses that instruct us to extend special consideration to the Ger, because we ourselves were Gerim in the land of Egypt, therefore refer to foreign-born non-Jews who are temporarily living in our country under our rule. As I said, there are other places where a ger may mean something else. But in these places where the ger is somebody who was in the same situation as the Israelites were in Egypt, okay, it's, we weren't uh, members of the Egyptian religion or nation. We were strangers from 
our country of origin, which was uh, um, Jacob and his sons came from the land of Canaan at that time, and they were living outside of their country. And this is what God said to Abraham, your seed will be Geirim in a country that is not theirs. So the Bible is instructing us, the Torah is instructing us in these verses that we have to be specially kind and loving and considerate and not to oppress a foreign born non-Jew who is temporarily living in our country under our rule. However, and here's the switch. Since Second Temple times, the same verses that talk about the ger in the Torah have been applied to converts, what's called in Hebrew ger sedek, persons born as non-Jews who have chosen to become Jews and became Jewish via, via the procedure of giur. So all of those places that, and the shot meaning of the Bible referred to foreign-born non-Jews who are temporarily living in our country and our rule, under Torah Shabbat, under Hazal, these same verses referred to a person who was formerly previously a non-Jew, but is now what? A Jew. And they're not with us temporarily. They're with us permanently in our community. And the rabbis explained that we have to be very considerate of a convert. You shall not oppress him. You shall not say to them, who are you? Yesterday you were an idolater. Today? entered under the wings of the Shun. You're a jolly come lately. You don't really belong. And they explain that the Izrach, when we say we have to treat the Ger as an Izrach, Izrach is a local born original Jew by from birth. And he is obligated to all matters of Torah. And a Ger is somebody who has taken upon himself all matters of Torah. And therefore, they the, the, the interpretation now has a problem because the Torah speaks about the ger coming in your country. So if we're now transferring this to talk about a convert, then maybe we should be thinking of only people who convert in the land of Israel. And in fact, the Midrash Halacha has an issue with this, and they say, when a ger resides with you, from this I know that a ger, in this sense, they understand it as a convert, can be an Eretz Israel. How do I know that this is possible also in lands outside of Eretz Israel? First states, in any place that you are, there can be gerim. Okay, so in biblical times, we were talking about a ger in the sense of a non-Jewish person that comes from outside our country. And now that person, an individual plucked 
from his background is being regarded as a person that we have to care for, love, not oppress, and so on. And now we're talking, no, it's about the convert. Now, one reason, the one understanding of this is that when Chazal were talking about these verses, there was no Jewish state. There was no Jewish government. There was no way that we would be responsible for a non-Jewish person coming to reside temporarily in Eretz Israel. Why? Because we ourselves were not in possession of Eretz Israel. It was Romans, Greeks, later Muslims, Christians, whatever. So the whole biblical situation that somebody is coming to live with us in our country and we have to care for them because they're detached from their support and base and family that didn't exist in the time of Chazal. And the person that was most similar to that is somebody who, in a certain sense, left their context of origin and joined our community, wherever that community is in the world. And it's well known until this day that a person who is a convert to Gertzedek, really it's not so easy for them to be accepted in the many Jewish communities and they need a lot of consideration and help. So we certainly can appreciate why and how important it is that Chazal take these verses and apply them to the Gertzedek. However, I'm moving down. Uh, Okay, so I'm, we have different sources here that in all cases and in all sources, the protective umbrella accorded by the pshat, the plain meaning of Torah, to foreign-born non-Jews who now come to live in our country has been shifted by the Torah Shabbat to converts. So we would think that the straight pointing original meaning of the biblical text is a matter of philological historical interest. However, the establishment of a sovereign state with the Jewish majority in Eretz Israel has returned us, in a sense, to a neo-biblical reality. Due to the relative economic prosperity prevailing in Israel in recent years, thousands of foreign-born non-Jews are temporarily living and working in Israel. Their social and economic situation is problematic. They are clearly in need of halachic affirmation of our responsibility towards their well-being. They fit the pshat of Gerim, but the Torah Shabbat and the entire halacha has allocated all of the protections allocated by Torah to a person called Ger. They have taken all these and extended them to who? The converts. So the blanket has been pulled away, as it were, from the original Gerim, but now we have that reality again. By the way, if people think, oh, the state of Israel, the state of Israel, but, and I'll get back to this later, but I'll state it right now, in countries where Jews are democratic citizens and they are equally sovereign in those countries, to all other citizens, in that sense, Jews in the United States, in Canada, in Great Britain, and France have the same responsibility 
as anyone else in that country for what happens with foreign born people that come to work or to whatever in that country. And therefore the same issue that Israel has really the same problem exists for Jews living in any democratic country where they are equally sovereign with everybody else in that country. So the question is, can halakha satisfactorily extend protection to those persons, the people that come from foreign countries to live as individuals, uh, foreign workers, whatever, without ipso facto rejecting the possession of Torah Shabbat that this is extent to converge. Okay, so that's what I wanna do now. And let's see, and we'll start with interesting other cases. The Torah says, you shall not curse a person who is deaf and you shall not place a stumbling block before a person who is blind. What does this mean to not place a stumbling block before a person who is blind? We can look through the entire Torah Shabbat, all rabbinic sources, all subsequent halachic sources, and what do we see? That not to place a stumbling block before a person who is blind is referring metaphorically to somebody who doesn't understand, doesn't realize what's going on. Uh, he might sin if we help him, and by our doing a certain thing, we this is a stumbling block for him to uh, uh, enter into sin or enter under some, we give him bad advice and so on. Uh, and this verse is understood throughout the Torah Shabbat in a metaphorical sense. And therefore, an amazing fact is that nowhere in Chazal or in subsequent halachic codes does it say that there is a halachic prohibition to take a large block of wood and place it on the ground two meters ahead of a blind person walking in that direction. So the Torah seems to say, you're not allowed to do that. But throughout the halachic literature, it never says that you're not allowed to do what's the same plain meaning of Torah. Okay, so what do we do when the plain meaning of Torah doesn't appear in halacha, only metaphorical meanings. What happens to the plain meaning? Okay, so we'll see now that great rabbis, some great rabbis were aware of this. For instance, in Baba Kama 51a, the rabbis discuss a case, okay, you know, that it says in Torah that if somebody digs a pit in the street, in the public domain, and somebody else falls in or some animal falls in, the person that dug the pit is liable. Someone discusses a case in which the responsibility for the existence of that pit is because two people are responsible jointly. And they say, how could that be? Maybe they appointed, they hired a person and said to him, go dig a pit for us. And he did it, and someone fell in. So who's responsible? Well, they, right? Because they told him to do that. 
the Gemara says, no, it's not. Because when they told him to do that, they were telling him to sin, to do an Avera. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to dig a pit in the public uh, uh, domain in your own yard, yes, but not outside in the street. And therefore the question is, just a minute, how should that person have known that he's not allowed to do that? Where does it say in the Torah, you're not allowed to dig such a pit? And it doesn't say that anywhere. So how should he know that it's a verdict? Okay, the responsibility must come because the, somehow that person did something that Torah forbade. So uh, the great rabbi, Meir Simcha Cohen of Dvinsk, lived in 1843 to 1926, and he wrote a perush on the Torah called Meshach And he says, well, here's what we have. I translated it into English. I devoted a lot of time translating these sources into English for this cure. You shall not place a stumbling block before the vine. The Samaritans say, and the Talmud records that they hold this, that they don't have the drash, that you're not supposed to give poor advice to somebody, you're not supposed to enable a sinner to sin by giving him the material means to do so. The Samaritans explain that one may not place a boulder in the way of a blind person calling him to fall down. And here is the chidush of Rabbi Meir Simcha Koen. He says, you know what? Ken hu ha'emet, the plain meaning of the text that the Kuti, the Samaritans hold, is a valid meaning of the text. Umikan azhara, this verse is the source of the prohibition when cover or to dig a pit in the public domain. The pshat, because nowhere in Chazal does the pshat appear except in a metaphorical verse. And he says the valid content of this verse, the pshat holds halachically. And once we understand that, the fellow that was asked to dig the pit in Rashut Arabim should say, no, because God tells us not to do it. You two guys want to hire me to do a sinful act? No. And if he therefore did it without, he doesn't have the excuse that they told him to do that because God said, don't do such a thing. There's a Torah prohibition to do this. And in fact, Ramosha Feinstein in Shelotu Chivot Igrut Moshe mentions that he also has this same view. The prohibition, don't place an obstacle before a stumbling bug before a blind person has two meanings. One is to physically cause that person to fall. And that holds halachically. And the other is machshil, the isur, that somebody causes a metaphorical stumbling block that brings a sin upon that person. And both of these are valid. So we see a case in which 
although Lifnei Iver appears throughout halachic literature only in the metaphorical sense, these two great Talmidei Chachamim say that doesn't mean that the original Pshat meaning is not halachically valid. Similarly, another case, the Torah says, Lo tochelu al hadam lo velo you shall not eat over blood, not divine or interpret omens. Now what's happening here? Okay, Rambam and Morin of uh, uh, Now, okay, the Torah Shabal takes this, uh, according to the Shat, is a kind of witchcraft or divination. The pagans used to spill the blood of an animal, gallow it in a hollow, a pit, a small hole in the ground. And then the demons would gather there and eat the blood and the pagan would benefit from this association with the demons who would kill them of future events. But throughout the Torah we never get this shot meaning. Uh, so one thing is in Sanhedrin, 63a, they give five different interpretations of lo tochlu al hadam. None of them is a pshat. Not to eat from an animal before it dies completely. Something to do with the kohanim in the mikdash. Don't hold the wake after the burial of a person who was executed by the court. Uh, and so on. Nowhere in Chazal, in al does it say that there's a lachic prohibition to conduct a ceremony described in the Pshat, to convene demons. Now, does this mean that if a Jew today conducts such a ceremony for demons, he is not in transgression of the Pasuk? So Rabbi Eliyaf Shochemman devoted an interesting article to this question, and he concludes that Although Torah Shabalpeh never cites the Pshat as being forbidden, a person who today would conduct such a ceremony is in direct the transgression of the Torah prohibition, don't eat over the blood. How could he make this assertion? And he says, well, if you look in Tractate Shabbat 63a, you see that the Mishnah says, on Shabbat, where there's no Eve, a man may no go, not go out girded with a sword, but Rabbi Yehuda says that he may do so, since one may go out wearing ornaments. And for a man, a sword is an ornament. Now, there's a very interesting Talmudic discussion about this, but um, what we want to see here is the Talmud asks, where does Rabbi Eliezer get the idea that to wear a sword is like an ornament? And he says, well, there's an explicit pasuk in Tehillim that says, gird your sword upon your thigh, mighty one, your glory and your splendor, indicating that a sword is considered an ornament. Rav Kahana, from a, a Talmudic scholar said, that's a big surprise, I don't know that, he says. This is a metaphor urging a scholar, a mighty one, to have good arguments ready like a sword to fend off any attacks upon his interpretation of Torah. And he 
pointed this out to his teacher, Mars Bareidar Abhuna. This is a purely metaphorical verse. And what did Mar Barabhuna say? The metaphorical meaning is valid, but a biblical verse never loses its shot meaning. Ain mikra yotsemi And Rav Kana says, I is 18 years old. I studied in Tamilton. I never realized this until this meaning. I thought that whatever homiletical meaning the Torah Shabal Peh interprets verses, that's the only meaning that's valid halachically. And it's tractate Yevamot. The same idea appears where Rava said in the entire Torah, a verse does not depart from its shot meaning. In 1977, David Henschke, now a rabbi professor, wrote a remarkable article about this. And lengthy article in which he convincingly argues that contrary to what many people believe, the principle is not just an exegetical principle to use by biblical interpretation, but it's a halachic statement that even if the sages give us one or more homiletical interpretations of a verse that have halachic meaning, the pshat meaning remains halachically binding and is not displaced by the midrashic interpretation, which also do not explain, it displace each other, Now there's one important promise of a midrashic interpretation validated by Chazal absolutely contradicts the Pshat. They can't work together. One excludes the other. We have to choose one or the other. The Midrash trumps the Pshat. Maybe Ayn Tachat Ayn. Rabbi said, uh, somebody takes out your eye. What is it? You have to give monetary compensation, not to take out the eye. Because that's a good example where the Midrash and the Pshat can't fit together. But this doesn't hold for you shall not eat over the blood. The pshat can work together with the other meanings that the Midrash gave. Therefore, if a Jew today conducts such a ceremony, he most certainly is in direct transgression of an Isur Doraita. And that's in fact what their Simcha means. And uh, Rabbi Feinstein said about the stumbling block, the pshat of the stumbling block, you're not allowed, according to Torah, to take a physical big object and put it in the way of a blind person or create any physical thing that will hurt or damage people in the public domain. And that's despite the fact that Halachat or Ashabal Pit talks only about the metaphorical meanings. Now we're getting back to the topic of gear. The pshat meaning of the Torah, as we saw, is that a gear is somebody who is detached from his land of origin, is temporarily sojourning in a foreign country, as we were in Egypt. So the pshat is we have to love, can be considerate, and take care and not harm foreign born non Jews who are temporarily living in our country under our rule. 
Subsequently, these verses were homiletically interpreted by Chazal as according to Gerim. But now that we realize the principle of Ein Mikrayot Semidei Pshuton is a halachic statement, and even if the sages offer one or more homiletical interpretations of a verse, the pshat remains halachically binding and is not displaced or invalidated by the midrashic interpretations. Therefore, extending special consideration and care to Gerim, foreign-born, non-Jews were temporarily living in our country, whether Israel or other countries where Jews are equally sovereign to other citizens under our rule, the extending care to such people in no way precludes or prevents us from also extending special consideration to Gerit Tzedek, converts. Therefore, we are commanded by Torah to fulfill both meanings of these verses. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. And uh, I will conclude by pointing out that we have several sources over the generations that make this implication or make this statement in, for instance, Sefer Achinu, where he is talking about, you have to love the gear, explains that this pertains to a convert. But then he says, we should learn from this precious commandment to have mercy on a man who was in a city that is not the land of his birth and the place of the family of his fathers. We should not pass him by on the road when we find him alone and his helpers are far from him since the Torah warns us to have mercy on anyone who needs help. And the scriptures hints at the reason of the command, since you were strangers in the land of Egypt, we were previously burnt or hurt by this great pain that there is to every man who sees himself among foreign people and in a foreign land. And upon our remembering the great worry of the heart that there is in the matter, we will also have mercy for any person like this. Okay, also the Chafetz Chaim says this, but I would like to conclude with the interpretation of Rabbeinu Avraham, the son of the Rambam, right? Who lived around the year 1300, and he was a very interesting scholar and person um, in many ways. He was the only son of Rambam who called him Avraham because uh, Rambam greatly admired Avraham Avim. And he wrote a perush on the Torah, of which we have the Breshit uh, and Shmot. And this was published in 1958 from manuscript by the, under the auspices of the great scholar of Iraqi Jewish origin living in London, Suleiman David Sassoon. And here is how it looks. And I'm not a collector of books, but for some reason, many years ago, I bought this. And while I was preparing this material, not now, I have a whole article that I wrote about this, but never published. Avram Ben Arambam says, okay, this is the original is Arabic. The primary meaning of the word ger is a sojourning foreigner meaning the original pshat meaning. Later, it was extended to a convert who entered the faith. As we see in Shmot, 
וכי יגור איתך גר ועשה פסח להשם. הגר wants to sacrifice a פסח, but to sacrifice a פסח, you have to be part of the Jewish people. Because such a person is usually a sojourning foreigner. Now here's an interesting historical comment. In medieval times, a person was Muslim, could not convert in a Muslim country, he would be killed. A person who was Christian could not convert to Judaism in a Christian country because he would be killed. So if they wanted to convert, they would have to leave or frequently, they would have to leave their country of origin, travel to the other place. Okay, if a Christian from Europe would move to Islamic countries, they didn't care if a Christian became Jewish or whatever, as long as a Muslim didn't become Jewish. So a person who is a Ger Tzedek says, Avram ben Arama is usually also a Ger originally in the previous sense. The Pshat meaning of the Torah is what? Ger lo is in the sense of the Pshat of a sojourning foreigner. You yourselves were such people. And the sages of the Masoret interpreted it as referring to a Ger Tzedek. And it is possible, says Avram ben Arama, the intent is to both. In conclusion, in any country where Jews are sovereign, both in the state of Israel and in any democratic country where Jews are sovereign citizens, we are halachically obligated by Torah to extend special consideration and love both to foreign-born non-Jews who are temporarily living in our country under our rule, in addition, of course, to Gate Tzedek. And here I conclude. And uh, um, if anybody wants to ask a question or comment, uh, I suppose that Eddie will take or give the people the, the ability to respond. Great, great. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Zohar. Thank you so much. So I know people have been busy in the chat, but we hope you'll unmute yourself now and ask questions you have for Professor Zohar. If there's anything in the chat that I didn't see because I couldn't see it, so if somebody could read it to me, I'll be happy to respond. Is there anyone who wants to, to read what they what they wrote over there or offer a question? Yeah, if, if uh, that would be welcome. Um, as I wrote in the chat, and I, I may well have misunderstood your teaching in this regard, this thing about um, if two people hire somebody to dig a pit, in the street, it was a while ago, I hope I'm remembering it correctly. And somebody falls in it, they're not liable, just the digger. Um, that struck me as very, very strange because uh, I put in the chat, um, does that mean if you hire a hitman to kill someone and he does, you're not liable legally or for civil suit? Certainly in American, in American states laws, that certainly isn't the case. That's a specific crime to hire someone to kill someone. And I 
would imagine to hire someone to do anything illegal would be, a, you'd certainly be legally liable, however it would precisely be put in the, in the law. So I'm very surprised at that. I mentioned in the chat, if you ask somebody who ought to know Jewish law, dig this pit. So he, presumably he ought to know enough to say, no, I can't do that. If you hire somebody to, even if he should know Jewish law, so maybe he has some responsibility, but surely you do. Am I misunderstanding something here? No. In fact, uh, we can refer to the Nuremberg trials in which the claim of the defendants was that all they were doing was carrying out orders. And therefore, they could not be held responsible because they were just carrying out orders. And if I recall correctly, the position of the court was that that's not a valid defense. You are not allowed to follow an illegal order if you get paid for it, if whatever. And and uh, in fact, uh, one of the original discussions about this is in the case of murder when uh, the Sanhedrin under Shimon ben Shatach uh, wanted to call up the king for having ordered the execution of uh, certain uh, people. And the question was, could the king be held responsible because the executioners should not have done that because it, in fact, it's against her law to kill somebody under the order of anyone else, even if uh, you yourself would lose your life, right? That's one of the three things, is if somebody tells you to kill someone else or else he'll kill you and you're supposed to say, no, I'm not going to kill that person and this is one of the three instances of Yehareg Val Yavor. So the general principle is Ein Avera, a person who carries out an illegal act bears full responsibility for having carried out that act. Now it could be that under civil law or under other uh, constructions uh, or whatever, uh, it would be advantageous to the public order not to limit this, but the strict construction of the, the halakha and in all cases, and as we saw in the Nuremberg trial, is the defense of following an illegal order doesn't hold. May I just briefly respond? I'm not really following it all because you're, you're still focusing on the person who does it. But the Gemara that you quoted, as I say, much to my astonishment, which doesn't mean anything, I'm not that learned, um, said that the people who hire somebody to do something that they shouldn't aren't responsible. First of all, Nuremberg laws isn't Jewish law, so I would think that's not really that relevant. But again, I'm talking about the people who you were talking about in that example you cited, 
the people who hire someone to do something obviously much less serious than murder, but to do something they shouldn't. And they're saying the people who hired him aren't responsible. So I'm wondering how far does that go? I mean, in Jewish law, if you hire somebody to kill somebody, you're not responsible. You, you haven't committed any uh, uh, avera. You can't be uh, whatever, whatever the punishment would be. First of all, you certainly haven't committed the crime of murder. If you hire somebody to do so? Right. You didn't commit the crime of murder. The person that actually killed him committed the crime of murder. And, well, following what we saw in the sources, perhaps you put a stumbling block before the blind. And because you shouldn't have put the person in that situation or giving an incentive to sin so we could hold you under that, but you're not a murderer. And you're not, uh, you may not have actually done the crime, but to, I forget what it's called in uh, most American law, you'd certainly be guilty of a crime and maybe even a capital crime to hire somebody to kill someone. Are you saying in Jewish law, you're not criminally guilty for hiring somebody to kill someone? As, as far as I know, you're not guilty of murder for doing such a thing. Aside from not being guilty okay, of so murder, I, are I, you guilty of a, a, another crime? This is a fascinating conversation. I just want to move on to our next our next bit here. Rabbi Sirota, you want to jump in? Yes, I, I would. Uh, this I may be asking a question that would bring us into another lecture, but uh, the status of Ger, Ger Toshav, and Ger Tzedek, um, we were in Egypt uh, for centuries. Uh, um, I'm wondering if these, in your view, or at least you could give us an outline of your view, whether they have any applicability to, let us say, Palestinians. It's clear that the, the uh, I mean, the ordinary Palestinians who live in Eretz Israel, it's clear that foreign workers, temporary residents who come from other countries, uh, uh, fit into the biblical category of uh, gerim, uh, but you, you only, I, I, the real question is the applicability of ger toshav in any context, uh, uh, current, current context in Eretz Israel. Okay, so that's a, a good question, uh, but what I'm saying is the ger in the sense that it appears in deep sukim doesn't cover what rabbis invented the term ger toshav, okay? It, that's a different situation, okay? Now, why? Because, first of all, the Palestinians are not foreign-born. They're not living in a country that they're not native to. They're not living without their family and uh, whatever. So. Um, whatever protection and attitude we should have under Torah towards Palestinians, or for instance, take um, Native Americans, okay, various tribes that you have in Arizona and whatever, they may very well merit protection, care, and whatever, but under a different rubric. Not one rubric covers all people in need, like Yatom, Almana, and there's many people who could be in need and worthy of our protection. The gear in these psukim 
is talking about a certain type of person and doesn't cover everybody in a certain sense. Also, it wouldn't cover somebody who came from abroad, for instance, and got full American citizenship. They're not a gayer. They're now an American citizen and they should be accorded full respect and rights and whatever because they're American citizens, but they're not a foreign temporary alien anymore. So that's a different category of why they should get respect, help and support. Great. Great. Uh, Tim, did I see you want to jump in? No? All good. Okay. Anyone else want to jump in here? Feel free to unmute yourself if you'd like. But I just, maybe if there isn't another question, um, this part of this, uh, our status in Egypt after being there for centuries, uh, uh, isn't our, our status is challenging because we were oppressed at that point. I mean, there'd be generations and generations of uh, B'nai Israel who, who, who grew up in Egypt and uh, uh, um, did, how do you determine, uh, uh, you know, who, who qualifies uh, biblically for the status of Ger, since uh, we, we were settled there for, uh, for, for, for so long? Were we Gerim only in Egypt? Were we ever Gerim in Bavel? Um, I mean, is it tied to the nature of, what, uh, of uh, our experience in Mitzrayim? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, if a gear is somebody who comes from somewhere else, sees themselves as coming and belonging somewhere else, and now they are for the time being in some foreign country and not attached to their original place and context of origin, that would seem to be the meaning of gear. And for instance, let's say there were Jews who were now, so th there's an interesting question, which of course is a subjective question. When, what if a Jewish person is living in a country and they don't think that they really belong somewhere else? Okay, they're living in Sweden. They don't think that they belong in Israel. They feel that Sweden is their home. So they're not a gear anymore. They are now Swedish persons of the Jewish faith or whatever. And um, as you know, this was the interesting debate in the French parliament, just after the Republic was founded, should France give full citizenship to the Jews? And one side of this interesting debate in the French parliament was, no, because the Jews are a foreign nation living temporarily in Galut. And that's how the Jews see themselves. And that's how they are 
right? The, the Jews in, in southern France, the Sephardic Jews, called themselves La Nation Juive, okay? The Jewish nation. And as long as the Jews see themselves that way, they can't be simultaneously part of the French nation and part of the Jewish nation. And the other side was, no, no, no. These Jews, for whatever reason, can and should see themselves as part of the French nation, French persons of the Jewish mosaic faith. And under that rubric, the Republic can accommodate them because they can be part of the French people with the Israelite religion or the Christian religion, whatever religion, we don't care about that. So when Jews see themselves and feel as Gayrim and they're regarded as Gayrim by the other inhabitants that you don't belong here, you're not part of us, you belong somewhere else. And you said, that's right. Maybe we're living here hundreds of years, but we're, we're in Galut. So they're Gayrim. So the Jews in Babylonia were probably Gayrim. But would that hold for all Jews at all time? Well, that's now an interesting question. So to get back to the foreign worker, okay, if a foreign worker comes to live in Israel and work as an agricultural laborer or work as a nurse giving support to elderly people, but they continue to see themselves as belonging to their family and their country of origin, and they're here for some time and they're going to go back. That's the biblical year, which I now have argued according to the Pshat Halachic, we have obligations not to mistreat them, to be kind to them, to treat them fairly, and so on. However, if this person will ultimately, by whatever process, become an Israeli citizen, or choose to become Jewish, they're not a ger in that sense. They may be now a ger tzedek, they may be an Israeli citizen, but they're not an alien temporary worker who around the world is especially liable and vulnerable. I'm gonna Amazing, speak amazing. Thank you so much, Professor Zohar. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all for joining us. We hope you'll join many of our upcoming Rilatzedek learning opportunities in the coming days in Eretz Israel. Have a great night and everywhere else have a great day. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you.